We now enter the territory of endocrinology, which is also a bugaboo. You had Porter. Porter's very good. He's taught me a couple things on stuff. So you already have a good background since you had Porter on endocrinology. So I will expand upon what he has and reemphasize some things that he taught you and put it more into a clinical aspect. Okay, when we think about endocrinology, let's not put that out there, you'll be staring at it, not listening. We have a very confusing nomenclature. If I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis with destruction of my thyroid gland, what do we call that? Primary hypothyroidism. So that's the gland that actually makes the hormones screwed up. That's primary. Well, what if I had hypopituitarism and and uh, and and uh, and I had hypothyroidism. What that be called? Secondary hypothyroidism, because I don't have the TSH to stimulate my gland to that. What if I had hypothalamic disease, sarcoidosis, destroying thyroid-releasing hormone? What would that be? Tertiary. Very good. Now we used two terms the other day, like hyperparathyroidism. Okay. So if you had an adenoma on your parathyroid gland, making parathormone and producing hypercalcemia, what would that be? primary hyperparathyroidism, but if we had a, uh, for whatever reason, hypocalcemia, vitamin D deficiency or whatever, and it, and it asked the parathyroid to kind of increase that calcium level and, uh, and it underwent hyperplasia, what would we call that? Secondary hyperparathyroidism. And what if, after a long period of time, that parathyroid is making it, making it, making it, making it, making it, and some dude wants to become a dictator now, and then all of a sudden you end up getting hypercalcemia, okay, then that's called tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And you don't have to worry about that because that's rare. But you want to get familiar with the term primary, secondary, and tertiary. I think the best way of remembering that is uh, the thyroid hormone. You seem to have no, no problem with dealing with it. Okay, the other thing you want to remember is... Um, in terms of, of, uh, of processes and endocrine pathology, we have some situations where there's overactivity of the gland, and we have some uh, situations where there's underactivity of the gland. And so we have these different tests that we do, which confound medical students. We have stimulation tests. And what would we use a stimulation test for? If we have an underactive gland, we would probably do a stimulation test to see if we can get it to go get going again. If we have an overactive gland, We'd want to do some kind of suppression test to see if we can suppress it. Now, most of the time, the things that cause overactivity, we can't suppress them. There are two notable exceptions, however, to that where we can. And both deal with tumors in the pituitary gland, which are very common. One is a prolactinoma, can be suppressed. It can, it can, be, it can, it can prevent the tumor from making prolactin. And, of course, you already know what it is that suppresses it because it's the treatment for a prolactinoma, and that's bromocryptine. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me that you know that. What is bromocryptine? It's a dopamine analog. So, in other words, normally the reason why women are, don't have galacteria right now is they have dopamine inhibiting prolactin. Okay, so this should be no galacteria. Okay, so it's an inhibitory substance. In fact, you even use bromocryptine in treating Parkinson's disease. Because it is a dopamine analog, and that's, of course, what's missing in Parkinson's disease. Okay, so pro prolactinoma is a, as an example, and pituitary Cushing's. 
That's a benign tumor in the pituitary gland making too much ACTH. You can suppress it with a high dose of dexamethasone. Those are the only two exceptions for a tumor that's over, making too much stuff, being able to suppress it. There's no way that you could suppress a, a parathyroid adenoma from making parathyroid hormone. There's no way that you can prevent an adrenal adenoma making cortisol from making cortisol. There's no way that you can prevent an adrenal tumor in the glomerulosa from synthesizing aldosterone by trying to suppress it. It just say, to you. Okay, it's just going to say, you know, you can't do dork to me. I am autonomous. Okay, so that's, that's the concept, stimulation tests. So let me give you an example. Let's see how you do on this thing. Patient has hypocortisolism. Okay. Let's do an ACTH stimulation test. All right. And so we do hang up an IV drip and we put in some uh, ACTH. And um, we let it drip in there for a couple days and we're collecting uh, uh, urine for 17 hydroxycorticoids. That's the, that's the metabolic end product of cortisol. And nothing happens. Okay, we just never increase it. So what was the hypocortisolism due to? Addison's disease. The gland was destroyed. So you can stimulate it with ACTH until, until Timbuktu, and it's not going to make anything. But let's say after two or three days, all of a sudden we started seeing an increase in 17-hydroxycorticoids. Now, before you tell me, what's the cause of the hypocortisolism? Hypopituitarism. In other words, it was atrophic because it wasn't being stimulated by ACTH, but, but when you gave it ACTH over a period of time, it was able to regain its function again. And so you were able to distinguish by that simple test what the cause of hypocortisolism. Of course, there's even a simpler test, and that's ACTH. You know, if you have Addison's causing hypocortisolism, what would ACTH be? High. And if it was hypopituitarism causing hypocortisolism, what would ACTH be? Low. So, I mean, really, it's not all that bad. Okay, you've got lots of other tests to do to prove it. But they like you to see if you understand concepts. And so they ask these things. So let's deal with uh, hypopituitarism first and tell you the most common cause in adults. And that's right up here. That is a pituitary adenoma. It's been lifted out of the cell Look how big that stinking cell is. Who can tell me what bone it is? That's your anatomy question. Senoid. Just remember the surgery, transsenoidal surgery. That must mean that that's where the cellotursica is. Okay, you can see that it's expanded and there's the tumor. They're usually non-functioning and it just basically over time um, destroy all the normal pituitary as it grows and you end up with hypopituitarism. That's the most common cause in adults. Now let's say you have a pregnant woman. She uh, has a bruxial placenta, goes in a hypovolemic shock but you get her out of it, she's doing fine, she's feeding her baby at home on the breast, suddenly breast milk stops, what she have? She has postpartum necrosis, big deal. What does that mean? That means she's infarcted her pituitary, take a look down here. That's coagulation necrosis there, guys, and this is just a little bit of residual pituitary. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't that counter to what you said about the brain? Did you say that that's called liquefactive necrosis in the brain? I did, but this is the pituitary, okay? Pituitary is not the brain, okay? And so when you infarct it, it undergoes coagulation necrosis, not liquefactive, because it isn't brain, okay? And so you can obviously see. So in other words, the mechanism 
is ischemic necrosis, coagulation necrosis, and she has postpartum necrosis. You want to know why? If you're pregnant right now, your pituitary gland is two times the normal size right now. Okay? That's, that means it's really kind of a little uncomfortable in there, and that's cellotrystica. That's because of all the prolactin that's being synthesized. So how come a woman that's pregnant doesn't have galactorium? Because the estrogens and progesterone inhibit it from being released. So the moment you give birth, okay, then that, that, that uh, inhib inhibitory effect is released, then you start having galactorrhea and you're expressing milk. Understand? Okay. That's the second most common cause of hypopit in an adult is Sheehan's postpartum necrosis. Most common non-functioning pituitary adenoma. Child, craniopharyngioma. Craniopharyngioma uh, is of Rathke's pouch origin. Okay, Rathke's pouch is, uh, is, the, uh, the, uh, is part of the embryological development of the pituitary gland. And if little pieces of it remain, it can become neoplastically transformed in what is, what is called a craniopharyngioma. It's not a malignant tumor, it's a benign tumor, but it's in a bad place. Now this one is most commonly supracellar. What's supra mean? Above what? Cella. And what it does is it goes down and, and eventually uh, destroys the pituitary, but it likes to go forward and it bumps into something right in front of it. It's called the optic chiasm and what kind of visual defect you're going to have by, by temporal hemianopsia. In fact, they almost all had visual field defects with a cranial pharyngioma. So if they talk about a kid who has headaches, and has a visual field defect, or they actually do a schematic that shows the visual field defect, and they ask you what's causing this, and the answer is craniopharyngioma, tumor of Rathke's pouch origin. Okay? Now, when you have a tumor that's, uh, that's expanding in the cella tersica, the different releasing factors uh, uh, or hormones decrease uh, at, at, in a certain succession. The very first thing that usually gets destroyed are the gonadotropins. That's FSH and LH. So if I was a woman, what would happen to me? I'd have amenorrhea. And of course, it'd be secondary amenorrhea. Okay? What if I was a man? What's the analogous condition that men have that's analogous to amenorrhea in you guys? Impotence. Impotence is to a male as amenorrhea is to a female. Don't forget that. Impotence is to a male as amenorrhea is to a female. What is impotence? Impotence is failure to sustain an erection during attempted intercourse. That's the definition of impotence. So a male will become impotent. The next thing that goes is growth hormone. Now we know that growth hormone really only has two functions. We know it increases amino acid uptake, and it's involved in gluconeogenesis. So who's the one that produces the, the, uh, the bone growth and the soft tissue growth? Well, that's insulin-like growth factor 1, okay, which is present in the liver, IGF-1, which Porter taught you. Another name for that is somatomedins, same thing. Okay? So in other words, growth hormone, when it's released, has to stimulate the liver to release insulin-like growth factor 1, to cause the growth of bones, linear in this way, and soft tissue. So that's that's job, okay? Now, of course, a, an adult with a loss of growth hormone is not going to get smaller, okay? But they'll have the effects of the lack of growth hormone, and that is 
they are going to start losing some muscle mass, and they're going to have fasting hypoglycemia because growth hormone normally was gluconeogenic. And so if it's not there, then it's not contributing its function to enhancing gluconeogenesis, you're going to have hypoglycemia. So that's only what you'd only see in an adult. But what would you see in a child? Oh, it'd be a pituitary dwarfism. And, you know, that's an example of hypoplasia. Hypoplasia is an incomplete development of something. Well, basically, pituitary dwarf is an incomplete, uh, incompletely developed child. Now, the child looks totally normal. Totally. Everything looks normal except everything's smaller. So it's a, it's a, it fits the definition of hypoplasia. And that's because they lack growth hormone. Okay, so what would be the stimulation, the best stimulation test to see if your growth hormone or insulin growth factor deficient? Sleep. Sleep. You grow when you sleep. In fact, you grow at exactly 5 a.m. because that's when growth hormone comes out. That's the best stimulation test if you suspect a growth hormone deficiency. You collect blood at 5 a.m. in the morning to see if growth hormone Actually, a better test, insulin growth factor 1, that's a better test to see if it's increased. If it isn't, you're deficient. Now, why is it that arginine and histidine are essential amino acids? And you probably, Well, you don't know that yet. Well, maybe you do. That's more biochemistry, which you're getting next week. I really strongly suggest that you all attend those lectures. That is one of the areas that most students are absolutely weakest on is biochemistry. Most people did not very good get a good biochemistry background in their schools. I didn't. I mean, I didn't know when I took my boards, I didn't know a single thing I saw on the boards. It was structures and all that crap during my boards. I don't have that on yours now. I had no idea what they were talking about. Somehow I passed it. I have no idea how. I just I was, must have been a good guesser. I had a horrible biochemistry course. I don't know anything. Now, I know... 100,000 times more now uh, biochemistry. In fact, I teach my medical students for the board review uh, at my school and, uh, you know, for this test, okay? I don't have a problem except for DNA, no dork about DNA. But all the other stuff, no problem. But it took me years to do it, okay? So it's, it's, it's poorly taught, and so you don't have a really good grasp on it, and the board knows that, and they really get into it. Okay, they're really going to, your high yields will be very useful because it will give you some hint about how they really get into it and a lot of answers to those things. Listen to Hanson, though, because she knows what's on the test. And she's an excellent teacher, better than anyone I've ever heard. And I've heard them all, Harvey, Champ, you name them. I've heard them all. She's better than all of them. Do not miss those lectures. I heard that you have a tendency of sometimes not attending lectures. Don't miss these don't miss these lectures, or you will be severely compromised on your ability to do well on biochemistry on this exam. Don't miss those lectures. She's good, and she's interesting, too, and she can do clinical applications, too. In fact, I thought the best notes in the whole uh, Kaplan series were hers. Okay, they were excellent. They were excellent notes. So... Don't miss those. If I were you, you'd be going, that would be really stupid to miss those, sit out on those lectures. So I can study it on my own. Nope, nope. She's going to do a better job of uh, teaching you biochemistry than you studying it on your own. Better. Do you understand? I'm just suggesting that to her, not demanding it, because I ain't going to be here. I'm going to be, I'm going to be with my own little dudes teaching them hematology next week, okay? Okay, so you can do what you want, but I'm telling you, if I were you, I'd listen to what I say. 
You don't want to miss those lectures. Okay. Well, arginine and histidine are absolutely essential for normal growth of a child. Why? Remember, those are basic amino acids. Answer, they stimulate growth hormone. That's why weightlifters go to the store and get arginine supplements. They even know it, okay, because it stimulates growth hormone. Okay, these little iron heads go there, and they even know that arginine and histidine and ornithine and all those things stimulate it, and that's how they get supplements to deal with it. Okay, and uh, try to build up the muscles. Okay, so sleep is the best, and an arginine stimulation test is the second best. All right. The third thing that goes is TSH. So that's that's an obvious one. They're going to have hypothyroidism. Okay, so that low TSH, low T4, no problem on that. You all know the signs and symptoms. You know, cold intolerance, delayed reflexes, fatigue, brittle hair, the whole bull dickies. Okay. The next thing that goes is ACTH. So that means you're going to have hypocortisolism. And again, that's kind of like growth hormone. You're not going to have, you're going to basically be fatigued with a low cortisol level. And cortisol is also gluconeogenic. You're going to have fasting hypoglycemia. That's about it. So ACTH would be low, cortisol would be low. The last thing is prolactin. And of course, in a non-pregnant person, you'll never know you have that. So those are the order of succession, which you don't need to know the order of succession, but you do need to know if they were absent, what would happen. Okay. Let's talk about uh, diabetes insipidus and how you distinguish it. The central versus nephrogenic. Central means you're lacking ADH. One of the more common causes of that is a car accident where you whack your head and your, and your brain goes... <laughs> And your stalk is staying still, and you sever your stalk. Okay? And one of the first things that's going to go, actually, is ADH, because you recall that antidiuretic hormone is made in the supraoptic and paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. And in that same nerve that it's made in, it goes down this big old axone through the stalk, and eventually is stored in the posterior pituitary. Same, same, same big nerve. So if you sever the stalk, and you sever that connection, you're ADH deficient, and immediately... Well, you're not only ADH deficient, you're also deficient in all the releasing factors that are made in a hypothalamus that stimulate the pituitary. So you'll be hypopit eventually too. But initially, you'll have the signs and symptoms of diabetes insipidus, which is polyuria and, uh, and, uh, and thirst, tremendous thirst, and you're just peeing all the time. Okay? That's central. Nephrogenic means you have ADH. But it doesn't work on the collecting tubule to make it uh, to make it permeable to free water. That's called nephrogenic. It's extremely easy in differentiating these two things. There's lots of other polyurias, guys. Don't forget diabetes mellitus, mechanism osmotic diuresis. Okay, polydipsia. You just drink too much water. That's usually a psychological problem. Hypercalcemia. Produces polyuria. Okay, so don't forget that there's other things in the differential. But for part one, they think that any second year medical student should know how to differentiate central from nephrogenic. So let's do it. It's very simple. Remember, if uh, using our little formula we taught you, CM sodium equals TBNA over TB water, if you're missing ADH or it doesn't work, you're losing water. Not salt, pure water. Okay, that means what you're doing is you're constantly diluting and you're never going to be able to concentrate urine. The exact opposite of inappropriate ADH, 
where ADH is always there and you're constantly concentrating and you're never going to dilute. In diabetes insipidus, you're constantly diluting your urine, losing free water, okay, and you're never going to be able to uh, concentrate your urine. Just the opposite. So you're losing all this water. Of course, serum sodium is going to go up, and that equates with an increase in plasma osmolality because, recall, most of the plasma osmolality is sodium. Okay. The way you do this test, guys, is you restrict water. Okay? So let's do that. Here's a normal person that you restrict water on, and what you're seeing is the plasma osmolality goes up to 292. That's right at the upper limit of normal for the osmolality. And look at this. It's 750 urine osmolality. Now, what does that mean? And concentrating. You deprive them of water, and so if that's true, then you should be concentrating a urine. In other words, getting water out of it to add back to your ECF and bring that bring that serum sodium into the normal range, huh? And this dude did it. Okay. All right. Now let's look at this patient over here. These two patients. We restricted water on them. They had a 319 and a 312 osmolality of plasma. That's elevated. So in other words, they have hypernatremia. When you restrict it, well, let's look at their urine osmolality. Look at that, 110 and 98. Whoa. First is the normal. So you know they both have diabetes insipidus. It can't be anything else. Okay, you know that. So how are you going to know which one's which? You give them ADH, another name for its vasopressin. So you give it to them and see what happens to the urine osmolality. If it increases greater than 50% from the baseline, then it's central. If it's less than 50%, and it's nephrogenic, so here we go. We look at this dude. Okay, you give him ADH, he went to 550. Is that greater than 50%? Yeah, so central diabetes insipidus. End of discussion. This guy went from a riproid 98 to a riproid 120. Is that is that a good response? So what does that patient have? Nephrogenic. End of discussion. Very, very simple. These students go crazy on this. Oh, it's a graph. It's a graph. I'm like you. You see a graph and stuff like that, I go crazy. I don't understand graphs. I'm dysgraphia. I have some kind of problem with this. I don't know what, what lobe there's a defect, but I sure do have it. And also arithmetic. So I have dysarithmetic here. <laughs> really, I do. Okay. Diagnosis, please. This is a, a picture 10 years ago of her driver's license. This is her now. Same person. She's got acromegaly. Great board question. What's the cheapest way of screening for acromegaly? Say, do you have an old picture of yourself, okay? And you get that picture, and then you look at that person now, and, and that is one of the best tests. That's cheap, isn't it? Just looking at a picture. <laughs> okay? Think cheap, remember. You see it in all the textbooks. They always, say, always look at an old picture. You know, people don't know they're changing that much. And even the people they're living with, they just kind of just used to it. But someone maybe that's been away for 10 years and comes in there and say, uh, where's Joan? I am Joan. You don't look like Joan. You're lying. You're an imposter. It's that much of a change. Okay, now you know, you know that we call it a gigantism if it's a kid whose epithesis have infused. And so when you get an excess of growth hormone and insulin growth factor, you're going to have an increase in linear growth. So they get to be giants. Many basketball players are classic acromegaly. There's a guy from Croatia right now. What is he, 7'6", something like that. He was in a movie with uh, Billy Crystal. If you look at his face, he has clear-cut acromegalic features, and he's 7'6". I forget the guy's name, but he's got acromegaly. There's no doubt about it. Jaws and James Bond. 
Uh, he's dead. He's dead. He's uh, he's dead since died. He he had uh, acromegaly. He's dead now. Uh, Andre the Giant, the big wrestler, he's dead. So in other words, it's bad disease. Very bad disease. They died cardiomyopathy. So they have excess growth hormone and they have excess insulin-like growth factor. So what about if you're an adult and you get an excess of this? Then you get acromegaly. You're not going to get taller because your epiphyses are fused, but the bones can go wider. And one of the bones in your head that does that is the frontal bones. And so they stick out. So you get this kind of this uh, uh, almost gorilla-like increase in the, in the frontal lobes. So your hat size increases. There's an increase in the frontal sinuses. Your hands get bigger. This is a normal hand here. This is a person with acromegaly. Your feet get bigger. Every organ in your body is bigger than it should be, including your heart. And that produces a cardiomyopathy, and that's how you die. That's how you die. Okay? That's all I have to really say about that. Most of you would know how to recognize this. And I have another picture to show you when we're done, uh, when we go through the slides pictures. Galactorrhea is always a common question asked on exams. Men don't get galactorrhea, guys. Uh, men don't get it because we don't have enough uh, terminal lobules to make it. So don't expect if a man had a prolactinoma that he's going to have galactorrhea. So I just want to just tell you that right now. Galactorrhea is a very interesting problem in women. And there's many, many causes, guys. And you better make sure that you get every drug that they're on, over the counter, under the counter, obliquely to the counter, and whatever to the counter, what angle to the counter, on the floor, whatever. All of them. Because there are many, many drugs that can stimulate prolactin synthesis in a release. Try birth control pills. They can do it. Okay, hydralazine, calcium channel blockers, um, and different kinds of psychotropic drugs can all stimulate um, prolactin synthesis. And then the big one is the primary hypothyroidism. You always have to get a TSH. Why? Because if you have Hashimoto's, not only is TSH increased, but also the releasing hormones increase, TRH. And TRH is actually used as a stimulation test for prolactin. So, God Almighty, you have to rule out hypothyroidism and, and a poor woman with galactorrhea. Like, can you imagine, you know, doing a neurosurgery on a woman that has galactorrhea due to hypothyroidism, only to find out there's nothing there in the pituitary? Not very cool. All right. So, we've got to root out all of that stuff. And when all of it's negative, okay, and you have a high prolactin, then the diagnosis is a prolactinoma. Okay? In fact, any prolactin level over 200 is always a prolactinoma. I mean, that's, there's, no, there's no drug that can do that, increase it. I'll tell you a common one that oftentimes women get worked up and everything's normal, but they still have galactorrhea. I can tell you what the cause is if you're interested. It's the bra rubbing on the nipple. See, tactile stimulation of the nipple will cause breast milk. When they talk about a wet nurse, okay, for feeding a baby, I hope you don't think it's someone that is already feeding a baby by breastfeeding and you just use the other breast for your baby. You can have an older woman and you can put a baby on her breast and over a period of time, the suckling reflex will occur and she will end up uh, producing breast milk and she can feed that baby for you. It's tactile stimulation. Some women are super sensitive to, uh, to stimulation of the nipple, and that will cause galactorrhea. That's, the, that's very common. Galactic levels will be normal. No drugs are causing it. You ruled it all out, and you go crazy. 
Okay. You want to cure that thing? Just just get a a bigger a bigger uh, bra and put some kind of cup underneath there where there's no stimulation of your nipple with anything. It'll go away. Just thought you'd like to know that it's a pearl. Now, why are our patients uh, that have a prolactinoma? Why do they develop secondary amenorrhea? Simple, because prolactin inhibits gonadotropin releasing hormone. See, that's why that's a cheap birth control pill for at least three months after you've delivered a baby. Because if you're breastfeeding, your prolactin levels are high. It's inhibiting your GnRH. And so you're kind of protected, at least for a couple months. But eventually, it'll break through. So it inhibits gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And that's all I really have to say about prolactinomas. Always ask guys, must know stuff. Now your bugaboo, thyroid studies. I'm going to tell you what you don't have to know. You don't have to know resin T3 uptake to diagnose these diseases, okay? And you don't need to know free T4 indexes. There's only three things you need to know. T4, TSH, and I-131 uptake. And most of the time, you don't even need I-131 uptake. That's all you need. In fact, if you only add one thing, TSH. If TSH is normal, guess what? Your thyroid is normal. Okay, it's just that simple. If TSH is decreased, okay, then that means you could have hyperthyroidism or hypopituitarism. TSH is increased, then you have high primary hypothyroidism. TSH is what most endocrinologists only get. They get the supersensitive TSH. If it's normal, forget it. They don't have an underactive, overactive gland. Their thyroid is normal. That's the cheapest test okay, to do. That's your best screen. Not T4, worthless. Let me tell you why. You'll see. Now, you have these diagrams. So let's go through it. You know that thyroid binding globulin, binding globulin is the binding protein for thyroid hormone. What's the binding protein for cortisol, please? Transcortin. Okay, what's the binding protein for calcium, please? Albumin. All right. What's the binding protein for iron? Transferrin. What's the binding protein for copper? Ceruloplasmin. And what percentage of the binding sites are occupied by whatever it is? By roughly 30%. Good. Okay. I'm, this is all schematic, guys. The numbers are, are not accurate. But the concept is. I'm saying that this is normal right here. We have two thyroid binding globulins here, okay? And I'm showing these black dots representing thyroid hormone. There are nine binding sites, and I'm showing three of the nine occupied, one-third. And similarly here, and this is the free T4 level right down there. When we measure a total T4, guys, it's T4 bound and free, okay? And so we have three, six, and six is 12. So the total T4 in this schematic is 12. But what's the free hormone level, the part that's metabolically active when it gets converted into T3? Six. So this is the part that's, that's actually doing all the work. The part that's bound does not. The total T4 in this, in this schematic is 12. The free T4 is six. And if that's the case, then the TSH should be normal. Agreed? Agreed? Okay. What happens if you're on a birth control pill where you have some kind of increase in estrogen? Thyroid binding globulin, so does transcortin increases, all right? So we have a situation like this. So right now, women, you're on a birth control pill. This is what's happening to you. Right now, women, if you're pregnant, this is what's happening to you, okay? You're going to get increased synthesis of thyroid bonding globulin, so I'm showing that increase there. Are you with me? Well, immediately, 
that's going to be one-third occupied. Now, where does that come from initially? It's going to come from your free hormone loss. So I'm showing these three going over there. But because everything's in equilibrium, in a millisecond, the thyroid gland senses that the, it's gone down a little bit, and it replaces those three immediately. That's the key. So has the free T4 level altered at all? No, it's still normal. So what should the TSH be? Totally normal. But what's the T4 going to be? Let's count. 3, 6, 9, plus 6 is 15. You have an increase in T4. But has the free hormone level altered? No. Has the TSH been altered? No. So what does an increase in T4 with a normal TSH mean, please? You're on estrogen. It's just that simple. You're on estrogen. And that's true of any pregnant woman, any, 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 any woman on estrogen. So the total T4 is elevated not because you've increased the free hormone level, but because you increased thyroid binding globulin, and it, and it automatically is, uh, is occupied by one-third of its binding sites by thyroid hormone. And the same thing is true for cortisol. If you're pregnant or you're on a breath control pill, your cortisol level is elevated, and you don't have signs of Cushing's. Why? It's elevated because transportin is increased because of the estrogen increasing synthesis of it, and so there'll be more cortisol bound to it, but your free cortisol levels are still normal. Both questions were asked on boards. Now, remember what I said, if you're a weightlifter or a professional football player, the way you are, anabolics. <laughs> okay. What does it do? The opposite. How do you think anabolics work? Anabolics break down proteins that you normally would use for making other things, to build up to put into your muscle. And the proteins it likes to go after are binding proteins. And so when you're on anabolics, thyroid binding globulin is decreased because the amino acids that you would use would have used to make it are used to go into your muscle to make your levator palpebrae stronger because you're not, you're not being able to contract enough. You've got to get that equal size and strength on both sides. Or maybe the muscles in your fingers are not exactly the same, so that when you, when you flex, the muscle isn't that good there. You want amino acids to go into it. So obviously, they wouldn't work if you didn't take amino acid supplements, would it? <laughs> no. It's also a false way of getting muscles. Okay. Did you know that Arnold Schwarzenegger did both? He took growth hormone and anabolics. And if you want to see acromegaly, just take a look at Arnold. Holy smoke. He is such a classic acromegalic, it's unbelievable. He's even got gaps in his teeth because the jaw grows, okay, and the teeth get gaps in it. That's why he has gaps in his teeth. He's got the classic lantern jaw. I mean, you can almost use it in, in architectural design for a square. And he admitted to it. You know, he admitted to being on growth hormone extracts and also anabolics. Stupid. Stupid. So, we're showing here a person that's on anabolics, and we're showing one less thyroid binding globulin because it isn't being synthesized because the amino acids were used for something else. Comprende? The same number of sites are occupied, the same number, the free T4 is still the same, it's just that you're missing thyroid binding globulin. So let's count. Three plus six is nine. The total's decreased. But is the free hormone level normal? Yes. What's the TSH? So if a person has a low T4 with a normal TSH, what are they on? Anabolic steroids. If a woman has a high T4 
and a normal TSH, what is she on? Estrogen. If a person has a high T4 and a low TSH, what do they have? Hyperthyroidism. If a patient has a low T4 and an increased TH, what do they have? Primary hypothyroidism. Did we need resin T3 uptake to make this diagnosis? No. It's a worthless. You don't think endocrinologists actually look at those, do you? All they look at is the TSH. Now, what's the I-131 uptake? That's a radioactive test. Remember, what is thyroid hormone? Tyrosine with iodine on it. That's a board question, by the way. All the different things that you can do with tyrosine. Melanin. Tyrosine, tyrosinase, dopamine. Goes into the Golgi apparatus, becomes melanin. Keep on going with tyrosine, phenylalanine, tyrosine, dopamine, dopa, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Catecholamines eventually come from it. Put some iodines and tyrosine, thyroid hormone. Pretty important, pretty important amino acid. Okay. Now, what was I going to with this? Oh, the I-131 uptake. So does it make sense then that if we had hyperthyroidism because our gland was overactive, Graves disease, that we'd be making more thyroid hormone. Agreed? Will we need more iodide to do that? Of course. So if I gave a person radioactive iodine, would there be an increased uptake of that radioactive iodine in that overactive blend? Yes or no? So I'll have, what would I have? Increased I-131 uptake. Agreed? But what if I was taking excess thyroid hormone to lose weight? What would I do to my TSH level? Suppress it. And if I gave... At that person, I could actually have signs of hyperthyroidism, but, but now it's because they're taking too much hormone. What do you think their gland's doing when, they, when they're taking that excess hormone? It's atrophy. So if you gave an I-131, radioactive I-131, would there be an increased uptake in their thyroid gland? No, it's atrophied. So is that the main way that you can distinguish if a person has true evidence of hyperthyroidism on whether it's because their gland is making too much hormone, Graves' disease, versus someone that is surreptitiously, purposely, or does it unknowingly taking too much thyroid hormone and producing hyperthyroidism? What would be the best test of distinguishing? I-131 uptake. If there's an increase, your gland's making it. You've got Graves'. If it's, if it's decreased, you're taking it. You just, you just confront them. So you're taking thyroid hormone. No, no, I went to this weight loss clinic, and I promise you, I'm not taking it. The weight loss clinic. Anytime you see in a weight loss clinic, guaranteed 30 pounds, 30 days, your money back. Well, I can tell you right now, there's going to be a pile of pills given to them, and a lot of them are going to be cow thyroid gland, which is going to purposely make them hyperthyroid, and then they're going to get keep, then they're going to keep their promise. So you're going to lose weight, okay, but at what expense? Hyperthyroidism. Big time. Okay? Good. Midline cyst. Midline cyst right there. Diagnosis. Thyroglossal cyst. Okay, remember the thyroid gland originally was at the base of your tongue and then migrated down the midline to its current location. Uh, cyst in the anterolateral portion of your neck. Diagnosis. Branchial cleft cyst. So midline, thyroglossal, anterolateral neck, branchial cleft. Better know all the branchial cleft derivatives. <clears throat> Every one of them. It's like the ones around and up in the head area. 
especially. Okay, thyroiditis, that's inflammation of the thyroid. Really the only important one, very honestly, is Hashimoto's. I don't think I've ever heard them ask a question about the subacute, in other words, decorvanes. I've never heard them ask that. So the only thyroiditis I would know is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Okay? Diagnosis, just, just scan it around. What does she got? You said grains. How do you know it isn't, um, she's taking too much thyroid hormone? Ah, she's got exophthalmic. In other words, you're telling me that's unique to Graves' disease. That's correct. The reason for that is, is the excess glycosaminoglycans being deposited in the orbital fat. And it's pushing her eye out. That's absolutely pathognomonic of Graves' disease. Now, this poor sucker over here has got malignant exophthalmic. He's going to lose both eyes. Okay. All right. Now, you don't believe that person has Graves' disease, do you? Yeah. All people, when they get Graves, have what is called apathetic Graves. Classic example is George Bush Sr. His wife... Any idiot knows that she has Graves. Her eyes have popped out of her head. Even a dog had Graves' disease. But George Sr., George Sr. had Graves' disease. I thought he was, I thought he was a cretin initially when his arguments, you know, when he was trying to get this reelected. I said, come on, get with it, George. Get with it. What's the matter with you? He was apathetic because he had Graves' disease. Here's a fact you want to remember always. All people with Graves' disease have heart problems with atrial fibrillation. That's what you want to remember. They get heart manifestations more than anything else. In fact, as a pearl, any patient with atrial fibrillation, you absolutely must get a TSH to rule out Graves' disease, whether they look like they have it or not, and then you're going to diagnose lots of Graves. If you're just thinking that, oh, I can tell they look jittery and all that, then you're going to, you're going to miss 8 million cases of Graves. Any patient with atrial fib, you've got to get a TSH. And that's what they did. He had problems with atrial fibrillation. I remember they said he had some arrhythmia they were talking about. And finally, somebody there figured out, maybe we want to get a TSH on George. And they did, and it was suppressed. There's no way. You look at that woman and say, she's hypothyroid. <laughs> but she had atrial arrhythmias and heart problems. She had graves. The TSH was totally suppressed, T4 up. Okay, now you all know the signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism, right? They have heat intolerance, they have sinus tachycardia, sometimes atrial fib, they have brisk reflexes, they have diarrhea, they have systolic hypertension, right? They potentially could have hypercalcemia, that was asked on boards, they wanted to know the mechanism, increased bone turnover. Basically what it is, guys, it's adrenergic. All the symptoms of hyperthyroidism are catecholamine things. Do you know why? Do you know why? I already told you why. I went from phenylalanine to tyrosine to dopamine to dopa to norepinephrine and epinephrine. T4 increases the synthesis of beta receptors. Guys, catecholamines are the cousin of thyroid hormone. They work together. Okay? All of them are. All of the symptoms are adrenergic. I'll rest my case with this. What's the treatment, the initial treatment of Graves' disease? Beta blocker. Why do they think they're doing that? They're blocking the adrenergic response, and it goes away totally. 
Then what you do is you give them propylthiuracil to stop big land from making it. But you can stop all the symptoms except one, sweating, with, that's a board question, a beta blocker. Oh, that's my case. Okay, that's that. So what's the thyroid studies on this patient? What's the T4? High. TSH? Low. I-131 uptake? High. Okay, good. This patient, uh, these patients have hypothyroidism, this one a little bit more advanced than this one. One of the key areas you want to look on the face in hypothyroidism is the periorbital area. There's always puffiness there, little puffiness. You can see it over here. Now, that's admittedly a very, very, uh, lots of people look puffy. Why is it puffy? Glycosaminoglycans. Glycosaminoglycans. I was having such fun, I could hardly hear this thing. Okay, so we'll, we'll break, and we'll come back to this. Okay, I think we left off with discussing why they have periorbital puffiness, why they have kind of hoarse throats, kind of very, very hoarse throats, why they get pretibial myxedema. What do all of those things have in common? An increase in glycosaminoglycan deposition. Okay, and so there's an increase in glycosaminodeposition in the uh, vocal cords, and they get the uh, hoarse throats in the periorbital tissue of the eye, and so they get that periorbital puffiness. And they can even get it in the uh, tibial area, a non-pitting type of edema um, related to an increase in glycosaminoglycan. So this is the second thing that we've seen something related to an increase in glycosaminoglycans. What's the first thing? It's called mitral valve prolapse, guys. I told you there was an increase in dermatan sulfate that was responsible for causing an excess and redundancy of the valve. So here's another pathologic example of an increase in glycosaminoglycans, and that is in Graves' disease and Hashimoto's disease. Actually, they're at the opposite ends of the spectrum, really. Graves' disease, for example, is due to, and I should have said this actually, it's due to an IgG antibody against the receptor, the TSH receptor. It's an IgG antibody against the TSH receptor, Graves' disease. And when it hooks into it, it just causes the gland to continue to synthesize, synthesize, synthesize. What type of hypersensitivity reaction is that? Antibody against the receptor. Two, uh, another example is myasthenia gravis. Okay, they have an antibody against the receptor, which is destroying the receptor. That's type 2 also, so that fits under that purview. And interesting, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, they have an IgG antibody against the TSH receptor too, except instead of activating the gland, it inhibits it. So basically, Hashimoto's and Graves' disease are both autoimmune diseases, but they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. One has a stimulatory IgG antibody, the other one has an inhibitory one. And so don't be surprised that they have maybe some, some overlapping uh, signs and symptoms, and one of them is uh, pretibial myxedema and uh, glycosaminoglycan deposition. They both can have that, both can have that particular abnormality, and that's glycosaminoglycans. How about a decrease in glycosaminoglycans? What, what diseases would that be? Let's say, uh, let's say uh, a problem with the metabolism of glycosaminoglycans. Lysosomal storage diseases, okay, Hurler's disease, Hunter's disease, you lack a lysosomal enzyme for breaking down dermatan sulfate and those kinds of things, okay, that's going to be biochemistry, 
the fact that you didn't know that means you're going to be here next week, right, listening, Dr. Dr. Hansen. Well, some of you did. You're just not saying anything because you're so humble, unlike myself. Okay. Now, um, you know the signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism. Uh, they uh, Actually, the most common is weakness, muscle weakness. And the reason for that is that all patients with hypothyroidism have proximal muscle myopathy. They can't really get up out of chairs too easily. The serum CKs are elevated. Okay, that's actually the most common symptom. But other ones include brittle hair, kind of coarse skin, uh, a little slow indentation, okay, and then this periorbital puffiness, delayed Achilles reflex, constipation, diastolic hypertension, not systolic hypertension. You know these uh, different things. Now, this is a biopsy of a, a thyroid gland. This was on a boards once. Uh, and someone with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and I defy you to tell me that that looks like normal thyroid gland. Where's the follicles? I don't see a single one, but I do see a germinal follicle. So, um, and the reason why you see this is because it's an autoimmune destruction of the gland. Okay, there's going to be cytotoxic T cells in here and there, and they're destroying this thing. And also, you're going to be uh, can be synthesizing some antibodies, some IgG antibody in there. So there's your germinal follicle. So it kind of looks like a lymph node, yeah, the thyroid gland in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So what are we going to see? We see a, a Watt T4 low. What's the TSH? High. They don't usually do I131 uptakes, but if they did, what would it be? Low. Very good. That's the end of discussion on that. We already did this. Well, let's do it again. All right. Estrogen. Someone's on estrogen. What would that do to the T4? Increase it. TSH. Normal. Of course, you're not going to do an I-131. <laughs> I'm going to do an I-131 on a pregnant woman. Oh, that would be a good idea. Because who else, who else's thyroid is going to take it up? The little dude. Okay, and what's going to end it up is that actually is a whopping dose. That actually would produce hypothyroidism in a little dude, and you'd end up with a little child with cretinism. That's right. Do you know that's responsive? Do you know that that uh, the brain isn't fully developed when a baby is born? Did you know that? That it takes about another year to a year and a half for it to be fully developed. And guess what hormone is totally responsible for that? Thyroid hormone. See, that's why it's so important to do newborn screens you know, using, uh, uh, I don't know whether they use TSH or whether they use T4, I'm not exactly sure on that, to rule out cretinism or hypothyroidism in a newborn because they're guaranteed being severely mentally retarded if you don't pick it up because the brain depends on thyroid hormone for its proper development after birth for the next year, year and a half. Very important that you pick it up. Otherwise, that poor little kid's doomed. Okay. Graves disease. T4, please. High TSH, low I-131, high. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, here he is on his anabolic. What's his T4? Low is TSH, normal. We ought to give him I-131. Maybe it'll stimulate him a little bit. Okay, how about Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis? T4, low. TSH, high. I-131 would be low. Factitious, what does that mean? You're taking too much thyroid hormone. And you have signs of hyperthyroidism. Okay, what would the T4 be? High. TSH, low. So everything looks the same as Graves, but what would the I131 be? Low. Very good. 
You guys should really be proud of yourselves. You're doing really good, actually. And I mean that. You are. That's excellent. What's this patient have by definition? A goiter. Anytime, anytime that thyroid's big. So actually, in Graves' disease, they have diffuse enlargement of the gland. That's a goiter. It fits it. This patient has, has, has a goiter. Uh, this is what the glands oftentimes look like with goiters. They got lots of cysts and stuff like it. And in fact, this one had a hemorrhage in it. The most common cause of a goiter is iodine deficiency. That's the most common. Not some kind of, not some kind of enzyme defect in the synthesis. That's more common, like saying kids that may have hypothyroidism, some genetic thing where they're missing an enzyme or something like that. But most of, most often it's, it's due to low iodide levels. And so in a sense they have either hypothyroidism or borderline hypothyroidism, okay? And, and so their glands are sometimes undergoing, uh, are getting revved up because, you know, if your, your T4 starts going down and TSH is going to start increasing, it's beating on the gland, make more, make more, make more. Then, oh, then it makes the T4 goes up and then TSH goes down. Okay, then it goes, you know, it's just a seesaw type of thing. You know, TSH is stimulating it, and it's not, and stimulating it, and it's not. The gland gets bigger over a period of time and produces a goiter. So that's why the treatment of choice for this is thyroxin. You give them the appropriate dose of thyroxin and then not to do that anymore, then the gland actually starts coming back down to a normal size. And oftentimes that's all you need. But sometimes they'll have a nodule that you feel. They'll say, you know, Doc, this thing, this bump in my, my, my neck over here just came up yesterday. Okay, and you feel it and all that stuff. Okay, that's this. What happens is some of the nodules that develop in the thyroid gland in these goiters get hemorrhage. And so that sudden increases due to hemorrhage within a cyst in that goiter. Very common. And so, you know, you can know that you can diagnose this easily with a fine needle aspiration. You stick your needle into that, blood would come out, send it to a cytologist, and they say benign cells in there, so you know you're dealing with that. And so what they would usually do off the bat first, give them thyroid hormone, and a lot of times these things will go away or things will start getting uh, smaller. And uh, that's it. That's goiter. So most cases are due to decreased iodide levels. You see, in this country, we, iod we uh, iodinize salt. And so we don't see a whole lot of, uh, of goiters in this country. Now, there are certain areas of our country here in the United States where, where uh, people are not taking iodized things and you see goiters. The Great Lakes area around Chicago is a very iodine poor area. And a lot of, in the olden days, you know, there was a lot of goiter in that area. Britain, uh, in, in Great Britain, I don't think they iodinized their, their, uh, their salt. I'm not exactly sure on that, but I remember reading that someplace. And, and they brought up the fact that when they get Graves' disease in Britain, it, it's not a, due to an increase in T4, it's mainly an increase in T3. They get a T3 toxicosis. And it's and it said in the books that I read that the reason why it's more likely a T3 toxicosis is that they're iodine deficient and don't have enough iodide to make T4. And so they basically make T3 and have, and have their Graves' disease. Now, I don't know whether that's still true, but I remember reading it in an internal medicine book. I did write a book on most commons in medicine, so I've read a lot of different things. And I remember them saying that about in, in, in Britain, Great Britain, there's a higher instance of T3 toxicosis than in our country here. And that's because of iodine deficiency. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Oh, by the way, I was told that that, that basketball player is not from Croatia, but from, from Romania, the one I was thinking about. 
I've got to think. I always get told, no, that's not my country. It's this country. It's always dangerous when you're in a, in a UN meeting here. Always dangerous. <laughs> mm. It's always more interesting, though. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, the, so the cold nodule. A lot of you think that means you feel the neck and it's cold. Okay, and your finger, you can't get your finger up there. Like, you know, you put your tongue on a, on a, on a, on a, on a flagpole and winter, uh, I can't get it off. And a lot of you think I know thing, hot nodule. Hot nodule. No, no. It's talking about whether that nodule is taking up I-131 or not. Okay, well, this obviously didn't. Because when it when they gave I-131, the normal gland that was making hormone took it up, but the, that nodule didn't. So it's a, it's a little it's a little area of uh, lucency. So it's called that's called a cold nodule. Now, just for fun, if it was a hot nodule, what would you have seen? There'd be a black dot right there, right in the location, and there would be none of this other stuff. Why is that? Because if that nodule is autonomously making thyroid hormone, what's TSH? Decreased, and if TSH is decreased, then wouldn't that, that wouldn't that suppress the normal portion of the thyroid gland, so it undergo atrophy, would not take it up. So this dude would be totally black. There'd be just a black dot there, and you would see nothing else. See, that's the concept of negative feedback, guys. You really got to get used to that. That's what's tested on endocrinology. You know these little negative feedback things. That's a good example of one right there. What's the chance that a cold nodule is malignant in a woman? About 15, 20%. Most of cold nodules in a woman, an older woman, uh, or an adult woman, let's just say that, are benign. In fact, most of them are cysts. A small percentage are what they call follicular adenomas, which are benign, and then about 15, 20% are actually cancer. Not true for an, a man. Any cold nodule in a man, is cancer to proven otherwise. Any cold nodule in a child is cancer to proven otherwise. Any person, male, female, kid, Martian, who had a neck area exposed to radiation, cold nodule, cancer. Papillary carcinoma of the thyroid. So any exposure in the head and neck area, cold nodule, cancer. So those are your statistics. And by the way, the cold nodule in the adult, Female, New England Journal of Medicine, article on the solitary cold nodule of the thyroid gland. That's the information I just gave you. So let's talk about papillary and the different cancers. Now, you could look at this, and there's no way in God's green earth that you can tell me that's malignant. That could be a follicular adenoma, something benign, or it could be cancer, or it could be a multinodular goiter. You have no idea until you biopsy it. Of course, the fine needle aspiration would be able to do that. Do you think it would show up as a hot nodule or a cold nodule? This was papillary cancer. A cold nodule. So it would be one of those examples of a cold nodule in this case. And it turned out to be papillary cancer. Papillary means papillary, guys. It means it's got little papillary things like a fern. And what are these little bluish things that you see scattered throughout there? Sonoma bodies. Have you seen this picture before with the lymph node with the cancer in it? Yeah, I showed it as an example of metastasis in a carcinoma. About 458 slides ago. Of course, I'm making up the number, but I'm trying to give some kind of idea. So what do papillary carcinomas, where would they metastasize? Cervical lymph nodes right next to it, and they commonly, commonly do. 
they have a very good prognosis, very good prognosis, papillary cancer. So the most common one, they're the only one that actually is associated with the radiation exposure. And don't worry, you don't need to know about orphan anti-nuclei and nuclear cleats. That's for pathology residents first year. You're not going to see crap like that on this exam. That is too specific. They're not interested in you being a pathologist. They want to know if you know something about papillary cancer, not its histology. <clears throat> this is follicular cancer. This is the second most common type, on a, and, and this is the one that doesn't know it's a carcinoma, and it invades vessels. In fact, when they do surgery on known follicular cancers, they most of the time do not do node picking, looking in the cervical things because they don't go to lymph nodes. They basically go hematogenous, which means they go to, to, to uh, lungs and bone most frequently. Okay, then medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. Uh, some cases are sporadic. Some cases have an autosomal dominant relationship. So what do you think the relationship is there? What syndromes? The men syndromes, and that's multiple endocrine neoplasia. That doesn't mean that men get this syndrome. This is men's syndrome, multiple endocrine, one, two A, two B. It's men, two B. Isn't that cute? They want to make it men one, men two, men three. Terrible. Wrote in all kinds of letters and notes. No, keep men to be. It means something to me. Get the get the rhyme on that? Very good. Okay. Uh, you can memorize as well as I can those different men's. You know, the men one is the pituitary tumors, the parathyroid adenoma, the uh, uh, pancreatic tumor, usually Zollinger, Ellison, peptic ulcer. Then men 2A, what? Medullary carcinoma, uh, pituitary pheochromocytoma. Men 2B, uh, medullary carcinoma, pheochromocytoma, mucosal neuromas. Great memory abilities, right? Big deal. Have I seen this? Big time I have. I've had seen men's syndrome. Anybody happen to know what the name of that little uh, thing that you can screen family members with to see if they have the potential for developing medullary carcinomas? RET. The RET proto-oncogene is associated with the men's syndrome. It's a proto-oncogene that codes for receptors and it's very unique to the men's syndromes. RET proto-oncogene. This is a this is a, a medullary carcinoma. See this pink staining crap? Let's say we stain it with Congo red, then we polarize it. We got a little apple green birefringence. So what does that mean this stuff is? Amyloid, and what did it come from? The tumor marker, which is calcitonin. Very good. Very good. That's the screening test of choice, actually, for medullary carcinoma. How would I ask it? I'd say, which cancer in the body, where, where would the cancer be located in the body where the tumor marker uh, is converted into amyloid. That should be thyroid, medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. It's a bad cancer. It's not a good cancer. Papillary is the best. Follicular, the next best. Medullary is not so good. Here we go again with our counting. So everyone's going to have a lot of fun with this. I want to go through this calcium thing with you for two reasons. One is to understand how a person can have tetany and a normal total calcium. Okay, that's one reason. Okay, now watch this. This is a normal, you have all of these things in your notes, these little diagrams just like you did for the T4. This is a normal situation. Uh, calcium is bound and free. Of course, it's the free ionized calcium that is metabolically active. Everyone knows that. That's true of any hormone. 
The part that's bound is totally metabolically inactive. The part that's free is metabolically active. So who would, who would this calcium be interacting with, parathormone? If it was low, the free T4 level, parathormone high. If it was high, low. Okay. Low PTH. Okay, so let's, uh, this is all schematic here, guys. Notice that roughly, roughly, not exactly, one-third of the binding sites in albumin are occupied by, uh, by uh, calcium. Okay? So in other words, uh, there's a pretty big, uh, roughly 40% of the total T4 is the calcium bound to albumin. Okay? And then I'm showing another thing that is bound. So that would be like phosphates and sulfates that would be floating around, just a little bit more. And then the remainder, usually roughly about 47% or so, is ionized calcium. This is the dude that is metabolically active. Okay, so the total, T, total calcium here would be 4 plus 5 plus 5 is 10. But the ionized calcium is 5. I'm saying that's normal. You see? What do you think the most common overall cause of hypocalcemia is? Hypoalbuminemia. Hmm. If you have a low albumin level, then you're obviously going to have a decreased level because it's less albumin, then you're going to have less of the uh, less of the uh, of, of the albumin that normally would have bound calcium. That's the absolute most common cause of hypocalcium is a low albumin level. So before you start doing all kinds of different things looking for hypoparathyroidism, check the albumin level out first. If the albumin level is low, then that's the reason why the calcium is level is low, because that's not affecting the free hormone level. It's just the albumin's decreased. It's kind of similar to thyroid binding globulin being decreased, and what did it do to the total T4? Oh, it decreased it, but did it do anything to the uh, to the free hormone level? No. Same thing here. Okay, it's not affecting this at all. I think that's what my next thing is. Is that no? Okay. I'm going to show what happens when you have alkalosis. Now, this is all biochemistry. You ready? It doesn't matter whether it's respiratory or metabolic. Usually a little bit more common respiratory. You have a lot of hydrogen ions around in an alkalotic state, yes or no? No, you don't. You don't. It's decreased. Remember, metabolic or respiratory alkalosis, what's the pH? What's the number? It's, it's increased, but what's the hydrogen ion concentration? Decreased. Okay, now let me ask you a question. What are the acidic amino acids? Glutamate, spartate, okay. Why are they acidic? Because they have COOH groups. As opposed to basic amino acids, they have more NH groups. Okay? I'm going to ask you a question then. Albumin, the reason why it's such a great binder of calcium is it has the most negative charges of any protein in the body. That's because it has the most acidic amino acids in it. So I'm going to ask you, if you have an alkalotic state with less hydrogen ions, then those COOH groups become COO minus groups. Is that correct? Because if you have less hydrogen ions, then instead of having COOH there, it's COO minus. Agreed? So it has even more of a negative charge in an alkalotic state, which means it can bind more calcium. So where does it get it from? It kind of looking around and says, hey, I got more negative charges. Woo, there's some free, there's some free one down there. There's a whole pile of ionized calcium and sticks it on itself. Okay? Well, we haven't altered the total, have we? We just took it from, from Peter. We robbed Peter to pay Paul. In other words, we just took it down here and just put it up here. 
That hasn't affected the total, but it sure has decreased the ionized calcium level. So you're going to have tightening. But this is what I'm showing here. This is a normal. One, two, three, four, one, five of those. You have alkalosis. Okay? Now it's not one, two, three, four. It's five and six. And it got two from here. Okay, so they moved up there. The total is still one, two. The total is still six. Seven plus three is ten. Total is the same, but what's the ionized calcium level now? Three. You're going to get tetany. Well, that's, that's not what they were interested in, really. They wanted to know the mechanism of tetany. There it is. You did have neurophys, didn't you? And I'm no expert on this threshold because it smacks of math to me. Okay? Remember, you have a, a threshold for the action potential before the nerve or the muscle, you know, gets stimulated, right? Then you have a resting membrane potential. Is that correct? Well, what a decrease in ionized calcium uh, level does is it lowers the uh, the threshold for activating the nerve and the muscle. So I'm showing uh, here's minus 60. That's the normal threshold. And above it, then you excite the uh, muscle of the nerve and, it, and you get an action potential. I'm showing that this here has been lowered down to here. So in other words, you're partially depolarized whenever you have a, a low ionized calcium level. So it doesn't take a whole lot to reach an ion to activate the muscle or the nerve, and that's the mechanism of tetany. So you're lowering the, uh, the threshold, the nerve, uh, the nerve threshold. In hypercalcemia, the exact opposite, you're raising the threshold. So it takes more uh, ionized calcium in order to, uh, uh, to activate the, the nerve. Okay? That's the mechanism. I can't tell you how this is to drive me crazy because of the squares and all that crap. And this is how I'm going to explain parathormone and calcium disorders for you. Okay, so if I were you, I'd just look at this because you do have this there. I'm going to do all the calcium abnormalities just with this because this is the way they ask them. They put it in a graph form. That's clever. So they have serum parathermone on the y-axis. They have total calcium on the x-axis. You know, I don't know how long it took me to remember that it's the y-axis, so I have to do something. Y, I make believe on the letter Y, is the one that's up, okay? That means the other one's the other one. So this one's the X. <laughs> Sometimes I actually forget that and I have to go, okay, Y is this, X is that. Then, then they put this stinking square there, and they say, the square represents the normal values in a normal patient. I say, I don't get it. How does this represent the normal values in a normal patient? I just didn't get it. I just didn't say, wow, what, what does it mean? Finally, it don't, and I'm not kidding on this. I'm not make, this is not a joke. This is sad, actually. Finally, it dawned on me that the height of this square represented the serum parathermal level, and the width of that square, the square represented the serum calcium level. I can't tell you how long it took me to figure that out. Never got it, but one day it dawned on me. Now I know what it means. Now maybe some of you do too. So let's start with it, okay? Let's uh, We're not going to do all of these things like A, B, and B, and A, C. We're going to deal with A, C, D, and E, because those are the main ones that we need to know for board purposes. So let's interpret A. What's the serum calcium in this patient here? Okay, it's low because, because it's over here, okay? The normal calcium level would be over here, and this is to the left of it. But, and what's also the parathermal level? Well, it's low because this is the parathermal. So we have a low parathermal level and a low calcium. So what is that? Primary hypoparathyroidism. So that's easy. Now we got that. Just have to discuss it and we're done with it. Most common cause? 
previous thyroid surgery. So let's say they went in and removed the thyroid gland for cancer, uh, a very strong chance that all the glands that they left behind because of reaction to injury, infarcted, gone. So that's now why they nowadays auto-transplant. If they're going to take the whole thyroid out or most of the thyroid out and they know that they're going to screw up the other ones even though they're there, they'll take them out and put them in the forearm. And, of course, because it's your gland, you're not going to reject it unless, of course, you're one of those people that think everything's going to go wrong with you. You have this kind of a negative attitude, then you will actually reject your own gland because you reject yourself anyway. <laughs> trying to make a little point out of this thing. Now, me, if I had to have auto-transplant, where do you think I'd stick it? My butt. I'd stick it in my butt so that every time I sat down, I get a little charge, parathermone, and increased calcium. Okay, and that would, of course, be good for me because that would decrease excitability, right? That would raise it and so it kind of settle me down. So that would be a very good thing for me. So you can decide where, where you want your, your parathyroid glands to be transplanted. Most of the time, they put them in the forearm and they grow just fine. Okay. No, they even did that with a piece of uh, ovary ovums. I just read, I heard that on the TV, or uh, not the TV. The uh, they they were able to take a uh, ovum from a woman and, and uh, put him in her uh, forearm, and and they actually ovulated. The eggs popped during the time that they normally did. You didn't hear about this? This is truth. I know you're thinking that. You know, no, this is actually true. It was it was on it was on the radio. I was hearing this thing. I said, "That's unbelievable." They took. They, I think they were going to like radiate the woman's something like that. She had cancer, and so she's still in reproductive. She still wanted to have her own baby. So they harvested some of her eggs from her ovary, and and uh, implanted them in her forearm, and they, and they remained alive. And she she noticed that the time that she normally would have a uh, you know ovulation. It was, it would hurt a little bit in there, and it turned out that when they biopsied one of them, they actually showed that it had actually puffed uh, off that little piece of ovary that the egg was in. It was amazing, whatever. So that might be a good way of uh, allowing women to still uh, have eggs even when they're, uh, uh, when they're being, their ovaries are radiated. Okay, so uh, most commonly it's due to previous thyroid surgery, so they would tell you that. You know, they had a thyroidectomy, and then here's a person with tetany and all that stuff, and you know, hey, I suspect hypoparathyroidism here probably has something to do with that. And of course, that would fit A. Okay, now that's easy. How about a little kid, newborn, that has a cyanosis, and is irritable, and when you do an x-ray of the chest, there's no anterior medius spinal shadow. That's DeJord syndrome. So remember that. They have hypoparathyroidism along with an absent thymus. So they have pure cellular immune, and they ask that one. Of course, that would hit A2. Okay? Now, let's do with C. <clears throat> how do we interpret C in terms of calcium? Low. And how do we interpret in terms of parathermal? High. So what would that have to be? Low calcium, high parathermal. Shouldn't that be? So that can't be primary hyperparathyroidism. That is secondary. Okay? So whatever is causing hypocalcemia, is causing a compensatory increase in parathyromone. That's called secondary hyperparathyroidism. Well, the most common cause of that is renal failure. And why would that be? Because it'll have hypovitaminosis D, which decreases calcium and increases parathyromone. Okay? So any cause of hypocalcemia, okay, assuming that the parathyroid glands are normal, will cause a compensatory increase in parathyromone. Very simple um, uh, case. So that's that one. Let's do D, okay? How do you interpret D? Hypercalcemia and hyperparathermal. Now, I want you to think about that. Hypercalcemia 
increased parathelma? That shouldn't be. So if it's increased in the presence of hypercalcemia, it obviously means, to me at least, that the gland is not obeying negative feedback. So it must be primary hyperparathyroidism. That's correct. That would be a most common cause of hypercalcemia in, uh, in a community. Be that right now. So if someone here had hypercalcemia, okay, you would more likely have most likely have high primary hyperparathyroidism. If you were in a hospital, then that would more likely be malignant centers. Okay? The most con most primary hyperparathyroid patients are asymptomatic. If they are symptomatic, they usually have stones, calcium stones. That's the most common symptomatic presentation for primary hyperparathyroidism. So let's think about the, the laboratory changes. The parathormone level would be high, right? Calcium level would be high. Now think. What would the phosphate level be? Low, that's right. Because remember, parathermal normally increases calcium reabsorption and decreases phosphorus reabsorption. So high parathermal, high calcium, low, para, low, uh, low phosphate. Very good. Okay, that's primary hyperparathyroidism. A little more common in women than men, almost always greater than 50 years of age. Let's deal with E. How would you interpret E? <clears throat> high calcium, but what's the parathermal? Low. Should that be that way? Yes. If you have a high calcium, you should suppress your, your parathermal. So what, what would that be? All other causes of hypercalcemia except primary hyperparathyroidism. But most commonly, that's going to be due to malignancy. Would it be true also for parathermone-like peptide causes of hypercalcemia? Mm -hmm. Because it said it's parathermone-like peptide. It's not parathermal. In other words, it is increasing calcium reabsorption and phosphorus, but when you measure parathermal, it's not the same molecule. And so whether it's a, it's a parathermal-like peptide tumor producing it, like a squamous of the lung, uh, renal adenocarcinoma, or metastasis to bone, breaking the bone down, or Sarcoidosis producing hypercalcemia, multimyeloma producing hypercalcemia. What's the parathermal level? Low. So what's the absolute simplest and easiest way to determine the cause of hypercalcemia in a patient? Parathermal level. What if it's high? Diagnosis. Primary hyperparathyroidism. What if it's low? All the other causes. Play odds? Malignancy. Okay. This is the easiest way of teaching calcium parathermone disorders. Okay, we basically went through the common ones over here, and these are the ones they would ask on exams, and we gave you the key facts necessary for it. There's a lot more material in there for you, but actually when I do write my notes, I write them for part one, and I also write them for part two to help you along with that too. This picture was on the first, uh, first, first computer-based um, Examination of the USMLE. Diagnosis. Cushing's. How do you know? Stria doesn't mean a hill of beans to me. Every, every obese person has stria. Purple stria. All right. What else do you see? You see thin extremities and central obesity. Don't you? Okay. So let's discuss Cushing's. What's the most common cause of Cushing's? Think, think common. Someone on long-term steroid therapy. Who would that be? Patient that's, uh, let's say, uh, renal transplants and using it as an immunosuppressant, lupus, 
Something like that. Agreed? That's the most common. Now, if that's excluded, then you have to think of three sources. Pituitary Cushing's, which accounts for two-thirds of cases. Adrenal Cushing's. Ectopic Cushing's. Okay? Those three types of Cushing's. Now, that's just for fun. Which of those three would have the highest ACTH levels? Pituitary, adrenal, or ectopic Cushing's, which is a small cell carcinoma? Ectopic. Okay. Which one have the lowest ACTH levels? Adrenal. Why? What's it making? It's not making ACTH, guys. What's it making? Cortisol. So what would that do to ACTH? Suppress it. So in other words, that topic has the highest. Adrenal Cushing's has the lowest. And right in the middle is pituitary Cushing's. Most of which, most cases are due to pituitary Cushing's. A benign tumor making ACTH. With me so far? Okay, here we go. Now, there's two great screening tests for Cushing's. When, you, when you've excluded the fact that they're not on, 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 on steroids, then the screening tests are a 24-hour urine for free cortisol. Now, free cortisol doesn't mean that when you get, when you order it, that you don't have to pay anything for it. Basically, what it means is that it's cortisol that's in your urine, not attached to any protein. So it's free. It must mean that you had a lot of excess of it for there to be that much of it in your urine. That is the single best test, screening test, for Cushing's. According to New England Journal of Medicine article, Medical Progress on Cushing Syndrome. So that's the absolute single best test for distinguishing uh, Cushing Syndrome from Cushingoid obesity. Because the majority of people that you think have Cushing's, you can swear when you see an obese person that looks like they have a moon face. They're all, all plethoric. And you can convince yourself that they're purple stria, okay? And they have just classic, moon, you know, they look like they're Cushing's, okay? And you get a 24-hour year for free cortisol, normal. That's what you're going to see most of the time, okay? But if it's increased... They truly have Cushing's. In other words, it has about like 99-something percent sensitivity and, and specificity. It's excellent, excellent test. But that's not the one they'll ask you. They're going to ask you about suppression tests because they, they know that will screw you up. Okay? And so the suppression test is a dexamethasone suppression test. Low dose, high dose. Okay, no, both. Okay, they do both. Okay, I was just saying, Lodo is not no, like the question. That's very good. You're with it. You're right here. Here, you're able to, you're responding. This is good. Okay, the lack of response means you know where they are right now. Thinking about food. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Now, what is dexamethasone? It's a cortisol analog. Now I had problems with what the heck that always meant. What's an analog mean? It 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 acts like cortisol, but isn't cortisol. So what does cortisol do? You give, let's say you, let's say I don't have Cushing's. Let's say you give me dexamethasone and it's acting like cortisol. What should that do to me? Well, that should suppress my ACTH. And if you're suppressing that, then what should my cortisol level be? Low. Which would mean that I was suppressible. But what, what do you think you're going to get if you use a low dose of dexamethasone in a patient with Cushing's? Are you going to be able to suppress their cortisol? And so you see a lack of suppression. So that's a positive screening test. But it doesn't tell you which of the types it is. It just says, yep, you got Cushing's. Of course, the 24-hour urine for free cortisol would be increased. 
So now, remember I gave you two exceptions to the rule for a overproductive type of uh, endocrine disease that you can suppress. Which one did I say you could? Pituitary. And so if you give a high dose of dexamethasone, how much does it matter? Just high dose, you are able to suppress uh, the ACTH released by a pituitary tumor and cortisol goes down. Not so for adrenal Cushing's. Not so for ectopic cushions due to, due to a small cell, forget it. It's actually quite easy on the exam. It's going to be one of these things that is this long. And they give you all its data. And you're knowing and reading the stem of the question that it's Cushing's, okay? Okay, I suggest to you, by the way, when you get long ones, read the last sentence first, in my opinion, because it tells you what it is they want. Do they want a diagnosis? Do they want a mechanism? And that way, when you're reading it, you have some idea what it is they're going to ask. A lot of times you go reading and says, I know what this is, I know what this is, and then it goes to, the patient has diabetes mellitus, and, you know, they give you the stupid answer, and you go absolutely ape nerd, okay, and you write it down, just in case you can't, because you can't touch the computer screen, and you just go crazy and have to read the whole stupid thing over again, because you weren't thinking about that, you were thinking they just wanted a diagnosis. You understand? Look at the last sentence on the big ones. Find out what it is they want, and that way you can read it. Uh, with more focus, okay, and do much better. So you know it's Cushing's and you're reading the thing, okay? And then you look at the thing and they want to know which type. So you say, this is the, well, the first thing I do, look at the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. And if you see that, it suppresses pituitary Cushing's. I might add, everyone to date has been pituitary Cushing's on the boards. Okay, every single one of them has been that way. Okay, so it's not a hard question to get right. Okay, I just very quickly am going to explain for you, almost with trepidation because you haven't had Hansen yet, why they look like this. Okay. Now, you have hypercortisolism, agreed? Cortisol is gluconeogenic, agreed? So you need substrates for gluconeogenesis. Hmm? What's your main substrate from your gluconeogenesis? Amino acids. From where? Muscle. Where your muscles located? Arms, legs. So you're going to get a breakdown of muscle in the extremities. That's why they have thin arms, thin legs. Then you're going to get the alanine. You transaminate it, you get your pyruvate. So you're always going to have thin arms and, uh, and extremities if you have hypercortisolism, okay? And since it is gluconeogenic, what's your glucose going to be? Okay. What does that do to insulin release? Increases it, okay? What does insulin do to fat? Increases fat storage. Where you're, where, what parts of your body have most, most of the adipose? Your face and your trunk. And so you're just basically getting from an insulin effect an increase in deposition of triglyceride in your face, your back, for your buffalo hump and trunk. So the thin extremities is due to breaking down muscle to get amino acids for gluconeogenesis. The moon faces, buffalo hump, and trunkal obesity is due to the uh, increase in insulin with increasing fat deposition. The stretch marks, are due to normal obesity, and the reason why they're purple is that cortisol decreases collagen synthesis. You get structurally weaker collagen. In a sense, you know what, remember senile purpura? Remember that? It's basically purpura within the stretch mark. You, you break down the vessels in there because of the increase in cortisol, and that's why they're purple, and that's why that is such a very, very good marker, because it clearly means there is vessel instability there, and that's, that goes along with hypercortisolism. There you go. That's how you get like this. 
Okay, what sign does this patient have with the thumb going in there? Trousseau sign, what does it mean? Tetany, okay. What if I told you this patient has hypertension, hypernatremia, hypokalemia, metabolic alkalosis, what's your diagnosis? Primary aldosteronism. Why do they have tetany? Because I just went through it with you before. And when you have alkalosis, what happens to the number of negative charges on, on albumin? Increases what happens to your ionized calcium level, decreases tetany. That combination, guys, hypertension, hypernatremia, hypokalemia, metabolic alkalosis, tetany, is primary aldosteronism, otherwise known as Kahn's syndrome. That's either that one. This has your adrenal medulla tumors. This is most common in adults. Who am I? Both of these patients have hypertension. Adult hypertension, adrenal medulla tumor. Who am I? Pheochromocytoma, benign and malignant. Benign. And then kid, hypertension, neuroblastoma, uh, benign and malignant. Malignant. Okay? So both of these tumors, one's benign, one's malignant, both are in the adrenal medulla, both are of neural crest origin, okay? Both produce hypertension, okay? Except pheochromocytoma more common in adults and neuroblastoma more common in kids, okay? And, and um, in terms of how, what would make you think that you had a patient with pheochromocytoma if they had hypertension? The answer is this. They would be a person that had very, very, very unstable hypertension. Listen, anxiety. They're very anxious. Three, they sweat a lot. I kind of call it the Danny DeVito syndrome. If anytime I see Danny DeVito, okay, he's always sweating. He's always anxious and frenetic. If he had hypertension, I would clearly get a 24-hour urine for metanephrine and Daniel Mandelagas. There is no doubt in my mind. That kind of person, anxious, sweating all the time, hypertension, that's when you get your 24-hour urine for metanephrine, which is actually the best test. And your 24-hour units for vanille, mandelic acid. Those are metabolic end products of epinephrine and norepinephrine. Okay, that's when you do it. Are there associations with pheochromocytoma with other things? We already mentioned some. We had MEN2A. We had MEN2B. Okay. We have neurofibromatosis with a high association. Matter of fact, they gave a question of a patient with neurofibromatosis who had hypertension. Okay, and they said, what test are you going to get? The answer was 24-hour urine for uh, metanephrine or VMA because of that high association of pheochromocytomas with neurofibromatosis. Um, so, yes, there are associations. Okay, this is uh, going to be asked because this is hot right now. That's a gram-negative diplococcus. This is a child, let's say 12, who had high fever, nuchal rigidity. You did a tap and you found uh, neutrophils in there, a spinal tap and gram negatives, all of a sudden the kid crashed. Kids start getting petechial lesions all over the body, and then when hypovolemic on you went into shock and died, you did an autopsy and you found out that both adrenal glands were hemorrhaged. Diagnosis, waterhouse Friedrichsen syndrome, organism, Neisseria meningitis. Listen very carefully on Neisseria meningitis. Most common cause of meningitis from one month to 18 years of age. Listen carefully. It's the only meningitis with particular lesions. And they always mention that. 
So they give you a classic meningitis. You know, nuclear, you know it is. And they say particular lesions, you can, lesions, you can stop thinking. It's Nigeria meningitis. And then they start talking about hypo, hypotensive shock, and you know that they, they hemorrhaged their uh, adrenals and, their, and they went into a hypo, uh, 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 they have no cortisol and they have no mineralocorticoids. Waterhouse Friedrichsen syndrome. Okay? They love that particular question. Very, very common. Very, very common thing. Now we know that a cause of, of a hypo, hypocortisolism that's chronic is Addison's disease. And by far and away the most common cause of Addison's disease is autoimmune. Autoimmune destruction of the gland. In the old days it used to be tuberculosis. You know, as miliary spread was a big, big cause of it. Not so much now. Now it's most commonly autoimmune. So let's just let's brainstorm Addison's just quickly. You're destroying the entire adrenal cortex. So that means the mineralocorticoid and the glucocorticoid aspects. So you have low cortisol, and what's your ACTH? High. What's that doing to your melanocytes in your skin? Increasing them, and where are you going to see hyperpigmentation? In the mouth. And elsewhere. Okay. Two, let's talk about the mineralocorticoid. No aldosterone, two pumps, sodium potassium pump, proton potassium pump. No aldosterone, are you going to lose salt? Big time. So you're going to have hyponatremia. Are you going to retain potassium? Hyperkalemia, peak T waves. Are you going to be able to get rid of protons into the urine? Metabolic acidosis. So hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis hyperpigmentation, got your diagnosis of that. It's relatively straightforward, simple diagnosis, not hard at all. Is that a normal genitalia in this newborn? You don't know, do you? So it's ambiguous, agreed? What if I, what's your first step in the management of this newborn, since it's ambiguous genitalia? Come on, that's your board question, guys. That's what they asked. Chromosome analysis, you have to find out what the genetic sex is. Sex, sex. So, ambiguous genitalia, female, phenotypically you can't tell, so it's a female pseudomaphrodite. Play odds. Adrenogenital syndrome, and agreed, 21 hydroxylase deficiency, that's correct. Okay? Now, Porter taught you this, right? Don't say no, you did, right? You lie, you lie, little man from Costa Rica. Porter <laughs> uh, did a good job on that. But when you take a look at that graph that I have of uh, look at the look at the look at the diagram of steroids. So it better be in there. Keep on going, keep on going. There you go. What page are you on? It's the one after page ninety-nine. Take a look at that diagram on page ninety-nine. That's going to be in the new book that I'm writing with another guy in biochemistry. That diagram there is one of the best diagrams you will ever see on this syndrome. It has everything in one place. Okay. Now, I'm going to do it for you too, just in case you don't get it, because you're guaranteed. Everyone in this room is going to get an adrenal genital syndrome question, no doubt about it. Okay, so you've got to know the main actors before you be able to answer these questions. So you have to know what 17 ketos are. You got to need to know what 17 hydroxys are. You have to know what 21 and 11 and 17 hydroxylates are. Otherwise, you are screwed. In other words, if you can't duplicate this chart, 
then you're not going to get the questions right. It will take you 10 minutes to do it. All right. Notice that the 17 hydroxylases are responsible for ah 17 ketosteroids. <laughs> That's why 17 hydroxylases. And they include DHEA, which you already knew about, and androstenedione. They are weak androgens. Androstenedione can be converted into testosterone, okay, and then testosterone to the dihydrose. So the uh, 17 ketosteroids are DHEA and androstenedione. Testosterone is not a 17 keto. What are 17 hydroxycorticoids? Those are these dudes. Okay, that's 11 deoxycortisol and cortisol. Those are 17 hydroxycorticoids. And you notice why they're 17 is because you have a 17 hydroxylase here to form 17 hydroxyprogesterone, and that's where they develop from. So if you have an increase in 17 hydroxycorticoids, that's an increase in 11 deoxycortisol and cortisol. If you have an increase in 17 ketosteroids, it's DHEA and androstenedione. Do you have that understanding? Do you have that understanding? Good. When you have an enzyme deficiency, things proximal to the block what? Decrease. Things distal to the block increase. Okay? So here's 21 hydroxylase. Do you see it? Wait. Things like, you have this. Things of 21 hydroxylase. Things distal to the block decrease. Good. Things proximal. It's getting close. My mind just goes out. I have neuroglycopenia by this time. So distal to the block decrease, proximal increase. Very good. I'm glad you had that little squinched up face. No. It was cool. You did that. That was good. And now I can't see because I have glaucoma. All right. You have 21 hydroxylase deficient. Draw a line across that. So everything distal decreases. Well, these are all your mineralocorticoids. Decreased. And your 17 hydroxycorticoids. Decreased. 17 ketos. Proximal. Increase. You're a baby. You're a female. You got all this excess androgens. What's going to happen to your genitalia? Ambiguous. 17 hydroxys. Decreased. How about the mineralocorticoid part? Missing. So you're going to retain salt or lose it? Lose it. Salt loser. So you have, you're basically like an Addison. You're basically like an Addison. What's your ACTH level of cortisol decreased? High. That's why all the children are hyperpigmented. Done. Right, 11 hydroxylase deficiency, a little bit below there, okay? Okay, what's decreased? Cortisol, okay, corticosterone, aldosterone. What's increased? Look, 11-deoxycorticosterone, is, is that a mineralocorticoid? Uh-huh. Is 11-deoxycortisol increased? Uh-huh. So what's your 17-hydroxycorticoids in this patient? Increased. In 21, it was decreased because the block's here, and both of these were decreased. 11's here. That's increased, that's decreased. So the 70 hydroxys is increased. Are your 17 ketos increased? Mm -hmm. What's a little girl going to look like? Because she's going to tell you. What's a little boy going to look like? Precocious puberty. Because he's going to have an excess in androgens. Is he a salt loser or is he a salt retainer? Retainer, so what is he going to have? Hypertension. So, How about 17 hydroxylase deficiency? So you're missing these. So are you going to have any 17 ketoids, ketosteroids? No. Are you going to have any 17 hydroxycorticoids if you're missing this? No. But are you going to have an increase in mineralocorticoids since it had absolutely nothing to do with the, with the synthesis of mineralocorticoids? Okay. So they're going to be increased. What's the patient going to have? Hypertension. What if it's a little boy with the low 17 ketosteroids? No testosterone. 
he's going to look like a female. Because he would not have in his development, because he's 70 hydroxylase deficiency, he would not be able to form 17 ketones, testosterone, or dihydrotestosterone. So his external genitalia would look female. What about the little girl? Well, she's going to have, you know, um, underdeveloped. She'd be underdeveloped. So that's that one. Done. I mean, you did that in less than five minutes. You did it in three minutes. Yeah, because that's it's not all that hard. It's pretty easy. If you know this. Look at look how beautiful this is. I don't know if you notice this. This is your zona glomerulosa here, guys, because there's your mineralocorticoids. There's your zona fasciculata, guys, because there's your glucocorticoids. There's your zona reticularis, guys, because there's your 17 ketosteroids and androgens. Have you ever seen a schematic like this? No. Did I make this up? No, it was in a postgraduate medicine article 25 years ago, and the guy's dead. And so I have changed it around a little bit. I put arrows in it that weren't there, and I shaded these things over here, and they weren't there, and now it is mine. <laughs> My weirdo wife, you bet. And I love it. Islet cell tumors. Islet cell tumors. You sound like you're nauseous. You're not going to be able to do this in three minutes? Sure I can. Because there's only two that you need to know. Insulinoma and ZE syndrome. You already know what that is. You're making too much gastrin. You have peptic ulcers. End of discussion. Okay? All right? Then you know what the question is going to be on insulinoma. Is the dude injecting insulin into himself or does he really have an insulinoma? Isn't that what it's going to be? Of course. And you know, that's totally simple because you learned that insulin, when you break pro-insulin down into insulin, you release C-peptide. So for every insulin molecule you release, you have a C-peptide that corresponds with it. So obviously, if you inject human insulin into yourself and produce a low glucose level, your insulin will be elevated because you inject it. But what's your C-peptide going to be? Suppressed. And if you really had an islet cell tumor, okay, you'd have hypoglycemia, a high insulin level, but what would you see peptide be? Increased. I mean, <clears throat> how hard is that? But you know what? The boards knew that. It was a, they, the question was a pharmacist. See, people that have access to insulin are the ones that get this. So that's us, nurses, and pharmacists, because we have access to insulin. And they, on the first test that they gave, they truly made it, the, uh, the guy uh, uh, injecting himself. Okay? In other words, the insulin was high and the C-peptide was low. And then all the news got out, you know, how the, everyone emails each other and all that. Well, the boards knew that you did that, okay, because they, they, uh, they, they knew that that information was out. So guess what they did on future exams? They used the same exact stem, except they changed one thing in it. That was the C-peptide level. And he made it increased. They didn't make it decrease. They increased it. And that made it what? An insulinoma. And a whole pile of people got that wrong. A whole pile of people said, Oh, man, this is the pharmacist question. I already know the answer. Boop. Okay. They didn't even look at the C-peptide. That's what you really should have done. Okay? You've got to look. You've got to look. You don't think these board guys are stupid, do you? They know that you're going to be telling each other about these things, and so they really got one on a lot of you. 
Okay, they just did the same question. They just changed the C-peptide level, okay, and they made it high, and that changed it suddenly, a pharmacist with an insulinoma, okay? <laughs> All right. Okay, when we come back, that's if you come back, we're going to do diabetes and keep on moving. Probably all you really need to know about it without me having to tell you, but I uh, have yeah, the type 1 and type 2, so let's see what you know, and you just say 1, 2, okay? Absolute insulin deficiency, 1. Antibodies against islet cells, 1. Family history of diabetes, 2. Obesity, uh, ketoacidosis, hyperosmolar nonketotacoma. HLA relationship, one. HLA relationship is one. Amyloid uh, in the islet cells, two. Type one is an antibody destruction of the islet cell. That's why it's called insulitis. They have an actual inflammation, but amyloid destruction uh, implies chronic disease type of thing. That's type two. Good. That, that, those are the key things. How about insulin? Both. Both. You, use, uh, you oftentimes have to use insulin in both of them. Now, one, you always have to use it, but in two, when eventually they get resistant to the sulfonylureas, you have to go the insulin route. So you can't say unequivocally that it's only, uh, it's only oral medications. Good. I remember we said that the, uh, the pathogenesis of uh, diabetes really relates to just a couple very simple processes. One is osmotic damage. And for that to occur, the tissue has to have aldose reductase in it. And so there's only a few tissues that actually have that enzyme. One is the lens. And so um, if it does, then it can convert glucose into sorbitol, and that's osmotic reactive, and it sucks water into your lens. I got another board question. I'll come back to that. Uh, pericytes in your retinal vessels. And so if you destroy them, then the, then the retinal vessels are weak, get little microaneurysms. You know, and that's why they can rupture and produce a blindness, okay? A Schwann cell, Schwann cells have aldose reductase, and so the mechanism of peripheral neuropathy, in fact, the most common cause of peripheral neuropathy in the United States is diabetes, and mechanism, osmotic damage. So that's one mechanism. The other is non-enzymatic glycosylization. Remember, no enzyme involved. Glucose attaches to amino acids and proteins and renders whatever that protein is, which is usually basement membrane, permeable to uh, proteins. So that, that's operative in uh, hyaline uh, arteriolosclerosis. That's operative in diabetic uh, uh, nephropathy, uh, non-enzymatic glycosylization as well. Hemoglobin A1C is a classic example of glycosylization, and it gives you an idea of long-term glycemic control. Okay, that's pretty much it. Not much uh, else on that. Let me see what else we have. A couple pictures. Here's another picture of uh, diabetic nephropathy really showing some pretty good hyaline arteriosclerosis, but not really the, the uh, Christmas ball effect. What did I say that if we had Christmas balls in there, what did I say that was? That's type 4 collagen in there. Okay, that was doing that. What's this? Dry gangrene. That's because related to increased incidence of atherosclerosis resulting in this. And here are your uh, microaneurysms that you commonly see in diabetes. And then here, this is advanced, what they call proliferative retinopathy, where there's been rupture and, and, uh, and separation of the retina, and this is when you can go blind. Okay. 
what I wanted to mention was, if they give you, a, and this is a fantastic question, and I'm not sure if they've asked it, but if they didn't, they should. And that is, I would say, you got a patient, let's say they're, um, let's make it an older patient, 50 years old, who uh, has a blurry vision, goes to an optometrist who gives them a, uh, a prescription for a new set of glasses, they get it, and two weeks later they have blurry vision again. Uh, so he goes again, and of course the refractor uh, is different, so it gives him another prescription, go get, get it, gets it filled, and one month later, blurry vision again. And so there's a constant change in refraction. What's your diagnosis? Diabetes. And uh, you know what's happening. What's happening is you're converting glucose into sorbitol, and water's going in and altering the refraction of the lens. And that's why it's absolutely classic. Anyone that's constantly having to change their their glasses because, uh, you know, on a frequent basis, you have to get a blood glucose level. That's almost a giveaway for being diabetes. It's an absolute classic question. So per people that, that constantly have to get their eyeglasses changed, change, you have to, have to get a blood fasting blood glucose to make your diagnosis. Okay, so remember that one. I think that's a great board question. I think uh, uh, you, you could do that. Well, in terms of laboratory, you don't need to know a whole lot on this thing, and that is in terms of all the, all the nuances. Uh, fasting glucose uh, uh, is, a, is a classic way, and if it's greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter on two separate occasions, you have diabetes. I'm going to ask you a question on uh, see if you've got your behavioral science statistics uh, down. In the old days, the fasting blood glucose cutoff was 140 milligrams per deciliter. Now it's uh, 126 milligrams per deciliter. Is that increasing the sensitivity uh, of the uh, test for the diagnosis of diabetes or increasing the specificity of the test for diagnosing diabetes? Sensitivity. By making it lower, in other words, closer to the normal range, then, that's, then you're going to be able to pick up more people uh, that have diabetes. When they set it at 140, that was set for high specificity, so there would be less false positives. In other words, if you were greater than 140, you unequivocally had diabetes. But they recognize now, because of the fact that your glucose levels do determine the severity of pathology, I mean, that now has been unequivocally proven. So they're saying, okay, now we want to make sure that we get all those people real early in the game, so we'll set the test for high sensitivity, Okay, to pick up all the people with diabetes, and so they lowered the reference interval to 126. That's a board question. Okay, if you didn't get that, you better read the first section of my high yield in pathology that deals with that. Okay, and it, and all those little statistic things on positive and negative predictive value. You want to know if you have two tests, what's the chance, what's the percent chance that one of them will be a false positive? If you don't know the answer to that. Well, better read the notes. The answer is five percent. So whatever. Okay, actually 10%, excuse me. Uh, so we don't need to do this anymore. Glucose intolerance, don't worry about that. And we did mention gestational diabetes is a woman who didn't have diabetes before she got pregnant, now she does. Okay, that's called gestational diabetes. And what's, what are some risk factors for the baby if a mommy doesn't have good glycemic control? Respiratory distress syndrome uh, is one, one example. Sometimes premature deliveries, etc. Also, women that do have gestational diabetes are at risk for develop, developing diabetes further on down the pike. So uh, you've got to watch these women. My daughter, for example, she had three 
three babies, and, and two of the three pregnancies, she was uh, she had just gestational diabetes, and so she has to watch herself from now on her blood sugar to see if she doesn't go into di uh, into diabetes mellitus. I think that's about it for diabetes of the key things that they ask on exams. Remember that stuff about amyloid, and they believe it or not, they really hone in on that amyloid in the in the beta islets. That's that's type two. And then inflammation of the islets, insulitis, antibodies against the islets, that's type 1. Our little friend Kotsaki, by the way, is involved in that. You see, if some of you thought that HLA was type 2, now that's type 1. What does HLA mean if you have a certain HLA type? It means that you have a propensity for developing something. Okay? What it means is it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get type 1 diabetes. It means that if you have a certain environmental factor, comes into the picture and you that certain HLA type that you could potentially develop that disease. And so what would be an environmental factor? Infection. And some of the classic ones that, that are very commonly associated with pushing a patient to type 1 diabetes, if they have that particular HLA type is Coxsackie, uh, mumps, uh, famous, uh, is famous for doing that. Uh, what else? There's a few other. Epstein-Barr virus is famous for doing that. So they're the trigger. They're the trigger. Take HLA-B27. If I was HLA-B27 positive, does that mean I'm going to get ankylosing spondylitis? Not necessarily. But what if I got a chlamydial infection? Could that be the environmental factor that makes me end up with ankylosing? Yeah. What if I had ulcerative colitis? Could that be the trigger that makes Yes. What if I had uh, shigellosis? Yes. What if I had uh, psoriasis and I, had, and, I was, and I had HLA B27? That would push me into ankylosing spondylitis. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the disease and you have to have some exposure to some environmental factor that will push you into it. And most commonly in type 1 diabetes, actually, it's a viral infection. And you remember vividly a young lady that, quote, had the flu. Okay? One month later, she was a type 1 diabetic. So apparently, uh, the, the flu was probably a Coxsackie infection or some other inf viral infection. She was the appropriate HLA type, and she ended up with type 1 diabetes one month. One month ago, she was perfectly normal, and now she's a type 1 diabetic. That's a very, very common presentation. Okay, we're done with uh, endocrine, and we're going to do musculoskeletal, skin, and then CNS.